0: Hello, Sopranos Podcast fans. This is Chris D'Amato here. I wanted to come on at the top of this episode and just offer a quick and sincere apology for the delay between Season 6, Episode 1, and Season 6, Episode 2. Without getting into much detail, because I don't like to blend different aspects of my life, The Sopranos Podcast is an entertainment product, and many of the other things I have going on outside of this are completely outside of the realm of entertainment. But long story short, I've been appointed to political office about a month ago when the last episode dropped, and I've been adjusting to that radical change in lifestyle. Being a public official, there's a lot of responsibility that goes along with that, and it came on rather suddenly. So I just wanted to let you know that I've gotten used to it at this point, I understand what the job entails, and I can now responsibly integrate everything else I had going on back into my routine. So we are back. This is episode two. I fully anticipate episode three being up as scheduled two Sundays from now. Thank you for being patient. If you would like to support us, we got a lot more Sopranos podcast coming your way the rest of season six, and then a lot more to come even after we finish our episode by episode breakdown. Please support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon now. We are The Sopranos Podcast on Patreon and we would really appreciate your support just to help us with some basic, uh, basic show expenses Any, and, and just a way to show your appreciation for the work that Jordan and Paul put in and, and I guess me as well. So thank you and enjoy our breakdown of Join the Club. Oh! There's wildfires in Costa Mesa. We are back for The Sopranos Podcast, Season 6, Part 1, Episode 2, The Waiting Room. I'm 46 years old. Who am I? Where am I going? That's a quote from the subconscious of Tony Soprano, codenamed Kevin Finnerty. In this bizarre sequence in Season 6, Episode 2, entitled Join the Club. This episode was written by David Chase and directed by David Nutter. And uh, if you didn't find this episode at the very least interesting, I would say you are a nutter. But the Davids really killed this one. Join the Club, man. This is an unsettling, eerie, bizarre, uh, somber, sad, scary... Good episode of The Sopranos. My initial, I'll start by saying this and then I'll, I'll throw it to you guys, but Alan Sepinwall, one of my favorite TV critics, particularly his writings on The Sopranos is what initially drew me to him, uh, asked David Chase after these episodes were given to critics, really bold of you to put out this dream sequence after the vitriol you got for the test dream," to which David Chase replied, this isn't a dream. So, with David Chase's comments, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And this is Join the Club. Boys, what did you think? Are you with me? You in on this one or not? What the fuck do we make of this mystery?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so, initial thoughts. I'm super in, but also, I do feel for the people who watch this show and are normal. (laughs) I I worry about... I worry about normal people watching Join the Club because, (laughs) as as we've often said, The Sopranos is just simply not a show that is what it appears to be on the surface. Because when you sell the show to somebody, you tell them, listen, this is a show about a guy who's dealing with his lowercase F family and his capital F family and all the stress that comes with trying to manage both of them and how those two worlds collide. And that would be enough. That would be enough to get someone's interest. You would interest a normal person by just telling them that. Okay. Uh, But once you try to explain the higher minded stuff, the weird shit, right? uh, You start to lose some people and join the club is very much a weird shit episode, right? It is the kind of stuff that some people can't deal with. I still remember my parents couldn't deal with this Kevin Finnerty stuff. Um, You know, they didn't like the test stream. Uh, these are the people who struggle with some of the stuff in the realm of uh, art and philosophy and psychology that the show introduces and doesn't fully explain. Uh, you know, In the pre-show, uh, Paul was mentioning the show The Leftovers, which he's just gotten into watching, one of my favorite shows. A lot of Sopranos viewers are not content to do what Leftovers viewers have to do and just let the mystery be. People who watch The Sopranos often need the show explained to them, join the club, refuses to offer explanations because at its front, it is a dream sequence that is not a dream sequence interlaced with a beautiful uh, hour of some of the most realistic being-in-a-hospital-type drama that I've ever seen.
0: Yeah. To the extent that it's almost voyeuristic and uncomfortable at many points because we've all been, I assume, most people have had a situation where a loved one was in a precarious situation at a hospital, and a lot of this reads uncomfortably familiar on the uh, earthly front but in kevin Finerty land it gets even more bizarre and spoiler alert we don't have all the answers and we're gonna do our best with this one but if you're coming to this podcast looking for this means this this means why uh i i i got i don't want to say i got nothing for you but boy oh boy paul what'd you think
2: <clears throat> i agree with you guys i think If I could put it provocatively, David Chase has balls as big as an Irish broad's ass. (laughs) Um, And I think what I mean is, is that this would be a bold move to do late in the season. It would still be a new kind of thing. As Chris Chris quoted David, it would not be a dream sequence. It would be weird. It would be out there. It would be a new departure as it is here. But it's the second episode of this season and david chase and the gang are charging into this other world that is enigmatic and as you guys said it has these questions these things are just up in the air and you have to sit with it i thought of it like you guys did about the people who might have not liked the test dream and its enigma what did they do with this they were probably freaking the hell out it's even more enigmatic um it's even more of a slow burn and that's the other thing is that Like you guys, I don't have a solid interpretation. I can't put my feet firmly in one camp and say it's this or that. But I think that David Chase and the gang wanted us to wrestle with some of the existential thematic questions of the world of The Sopranos. But they wanted us to do it in a space that is not as dynamic. They actually wanted us to do it in a space where we have to sit back a little bit and it moves slower and even in some ways kind of dull. Um, my feeling is, is that it's actually deliberate. Yeah. 20 years ago when it aired, I did not like it. Or I at least struggled with it a lot. But every time they would go into this coma sequence, I think because of what Jordan mentioned, not being able to put my finger on it, my guard would go up. And I would right. say, I don't like this. I have to say, this is one of the most radical shifts for me in doing this podcast with you guys is watching these episodes. My experience is so different than it's been in the past. I really lean forward again, not that I have answers, but I feel so much more open to it. And I thought this was an incredible hour of television myself.
0: Even just on the, on the level of we're getting an alternate Tony, what is different about this? Tony, what is the same? That's actually something that as an actor, I was taught early on as one technique. There's many techniques to get to the heart of a character, but I think an elementary acting technique is where are you similar to this character and where are you different? And then you build off of that. Where is this version of Tony Soprano different? Where is he similar? There are a lot of similarities, but then there are things that are radically different. He has a wife and two kids. He's from New Jersey. It's not Carmella. It's not AJ and it's not Meadow, those those voices on that answering machine. Right, it's
1: different kids,
0: yeah. I mean that's like immediate. Uh we don't have the accent. Uh yeah, we're just thrown right into it. Let's let's actually pick it apart a little bit here just cuz the first 10 minutes or so of the uh of the episode is this Kevin Finerty sequence. We wake up Tony's in a hotel room and we are as Paul said, dropped into a very dull setting. You get the sense that this place where Tony is in California is maybe not a tourist destination, but it is a place you might go for these transient corporate conferences. Uh, Costa Mesa doesn't feel like a destination. It feels like a place you are in layover or just visiting temporarily. And we're at the bar and they're playing the soft hotel lobby jazz and tony doesn't sound like tony he does have some stomach pain and there is a brief moment where we get a glimpse of a doctor holding a light when tony is looking up at the helicopter but all in all we're dropped right in we're getting some imagery of hell or fires anyway i think that's meant to evoke hell or purgatory and then we get some religious symbology a little bit later on in the television. Uh, and then of course the accent, which by the way, if you weren't already convinced at this point that James Gandolfini is a master actor, this is how James Gandolfini sounds. <laughs> right. This, his real, this, his
1: real voice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you watch James Gandolfini in an interview, he sounds like this Kevin Finerty. the accent he's been quote unquote putting on has been Tony Soprano. But we're here, he's, what is he selling? Precision fiber optics? Uh, let's, Let's just break down this first sequence. Thoughts on what we're introduced to, how we're introduced to, some of the themes, the kind of bland lameness of it, but also why that is also intriguing.
1: Well, the first thing I think I would like to discuss is setting. Um, you know, like you said, we're in this, uh, sort of airport town in, in California, Costa Mesa, is that right? Is that the name of the town? Yep. Um, which is, is certainly billed as, uh, or or seems to be a town where there really isn't anything. It's, it's a, it's a town that people pass through, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and we, uh, have the, the nature of this transient place is kind of seen, uh, through this repeated use of the hotel bar and even the hotel itself. There's this uh, strange beacon on the horizon of this place. It it Mm -hmm. seems to be a lighthouse, but we don't know what that is. And that kind of a light, a beacon, a lighthouse is in itself fraught with meaning. Um, You know, but uh, the point is a hotel bar or an airport town. These are purposefully purposefully in between places like thin places. So if we're meant to kind of go for the low hanging interpretation and that this is purgatory, literal purgatory, or even just a kind of purgatory, that's a pretty good modern equivalent, right? It's yeah. a place where people do not stay for long. Uh, and even if you are there for a protracted period of time, the thing you are waiting for is your destination, right? You're awaiting essentially judgment. Um, and the the setting is really pretty fascinating to me because it's, um, it, it is so... Um, it, at once, it is so direct in its assessment that it, it's in itself, it could be purgatory, but then it is also simply a, an ordinary place where everyone has been. We have all spent some time in a hotel bar, but it, it kind of brings up this idea that, like, when you're traveling, you know, you are a little bit less yourself, right? Uh, the people who are normally around you aren't with you, uh, you're not in places that are comfortable to you. Um, Yeah, it kind of presents an interesting opportunity for a different kind of Tony that is still the same Tony. The setting
2: is great. I agree. Uh, I've actually been to Costa Mesa in my 20s. um, My girlfriend's family lived there. And it was a nice little town. But yeah, it's like about 45 minutes south of LA and it's dead. There's nothing happening there. There's one office park, another office park, a place with good tacos and that's about it. Um, (laughs) So Jordan's um framework here is exactly right it's this in between place and this in between tony is endlessly fascinating to me because of what chris you mentioned up top could be similarities it could be subtle differences it could be big differences um one that came up right away for me um and this is a tribute to how brilliant an actor james gandolfini was was how it didn't even require him speaking to see the changes, to see the subtle differences. Watch how this Tony Soprano moves around with a rolly case and how he is <laughs> attached to it's it. very funny. Um, Watch how he drives a car. Uh, the way this Tony drives a car, we see it briefly. It's one hand at 10 o'clock, one hand at 2 o'clock. Our Tony drives with one hand at 10 o'clock and the other hand moving around with gestures talking like an Italian guy. Right? right? This is a different Tony in these important respects. And even just to see him like, you guys remember the sequence where he gets waylaid by not having um the proper ID. Right. Our, our Tony lives his life off the books without proper ID. That's where he's right. most comfortable. This one can't get in. He can't fly anywhere. All of a sudden, everything's up in the air. Um, It's fascinating, but you know, disorienting. Um, So I think Jordan's right in that we're in this space that's in between and we're with a Tony that is in between or supposed to be some offshoot. Again, I can't put my feet firmly anywhere. The craziest idea that I had as an interpretation of this episode is this is really a different Tony. There are multiple universes, and this is one from another universe that our Tony is encountering because he got dislodged from this one. That's as crazy and uh, LSD as I'm going to get on this, but yeah.
0: Oh God, another goddamn multiverse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a, that's great. Paul. I mean, that's, and that's, that's to me where the fun of this lies actually is uh, you're not going to get these fun dynamic scenes in the back of the Bing with Tony and Paulie and Silvio and the guys shooting the shit, but the theorizing is half the fun to me i i found myself thinking at multiple points are all of these people lost souls in their own purgatory in a hospital somewhere across the world and this is where all those lost souls converge uh i found myself thinking is this tony simply without johnny boy and livia just because what difference would that make I mean they have Tony has had multiple discussions throughout the series with Melfi about um about fate and about how you're you are what you are and what family you're born into and etc and all that so um yeah pretty pretty fascinating stuff it's all very fascinating and then we're dealing with issues of mistaken identity even right off the bat here Tony presents his ID Sometimes they get a little cute by half with the dialogue here. It's dead. Uh, It's a whole new world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of lines like that being dropped all over the peppered in here. Uh, Can't check back in, but I mean, for the most part, this huge uh, chunk of episode is, is this, this is a good, I don't know, maybe five to 10 minutes of the, of the episode here goes back to the old hotel, black and Cooper sandwich picked up the wrong briefcase Sees a woman, joins this group of other people. They're talking about drill bits and patio furniture, stuff that would bore the the Tony Soprano <laughs> we know to absolute tears. Right. And uh, he goes in to have an affair with this woman who is simultaneously both Tony's type, but also not. <laughs> right. <laughs> like so he, this yeah. this
1: woman, we would almost maybe peg her as more of like a Melfi type. Um mm. what's funny is that even though he's not tony quote unquote not tony right um he still sort of is right so he still has this alpha presence he's still able to pull this woman Mm -hmm. you know to him except in this version tony is seemingly not an adulterer right so one of the core things about tony does not exist he won't follow through on this and she picks up on that so it's amusing that, it, again, he, he's both himself and and not himself. He can draw a woman to him. He has the charisma to do that. But this Tony's different. He's too devoted to the wife and kids, even if they're they're far away. Something our Tony would would not
2: have a problem with. Yeah. That's a really good point. Our Tony would also, I don't think, I mean, he wouldn't be on a business trip like this, obviously. Right. Yeah. But th- and it's not that our Tony doesn't love Carmella and the kids, but I don't see him Checking in with that kind of regularity. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly not if he's like in Atlantic City with the guys. This guy actually feels like a pull. And it's actually kind of sweet to watch that he missed. He's like been gone for half the day so far, but he misses them. Um, It's a different vibe. Uh, Jordan's quite right. Uh, This woman, uh, by the way, this woman is credited as uh, Lee, which is what I think Johnny Boy used to sometimes call Livia. Wow, oh, wow, wow, good poll, good poll. Dr. Freud, line one. Um, <laughs> so and like Jordan, I'm fascinated by this command. The woman seemingly impressed that this Tony has um, acquitted himself quite well in this business, right? So, attraction, and then another, now an un Tony thing striking out the woman saying, You're not gonna go, you don't know, feel in this. What's fascinating to me is that if he had felt like it and they had gone through with it what it seems to me is this would have been much more a traditional american affair two people on a business trip um at least one of them attached loneliness some alcohol gets involved and it happens maybe you consider it a mistake that whole thing that's night and day between what our tony does in terms of affairs similarly think of what this tony talks about how maybe having felt some guilt pangs about pursuing the affair. He rationalized it by playing a little game with himself. It sounds like, Oh, there was this mix up and I'm some other guy tonight. I could get away with the whole thing. This Tony Soprano thinks it's an un-Tony Soprano thing to do to sleep around. <laughs> that is, is un- that is unrecognizable. That is <laughs> unrecognizable to me. Totally. Um, and sure enough, when that happens, there's funny line, they're looking for a perp, bam, we're out.
0: Well, and, you know, that also speaks to the other side of it, which is where is this guy similar and, in this coma sequence? He still feels persecuted and followed, like he's being watched, because the doctor's light comes in the form of a helicopter that's searching for a perp. So interesting little tidbit there and we are thrust back into reality uh i just yeah. wrote i wrote absolute horror <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it's um man it's just uh it's grotesque carmela looks and i say this with all due respect to edie falco this is by design of the wonderful makeup and lighting team she looks horrible she's been up for days she's fried no makeup She's, she's she's exhausted and and anxious yep. mm-hmm. uh this Tony... is, by the
1: way, an all-time Carmella episode.
0: Oh, yes. truly unbelievable! I believe she won an Emmy for this season, and this is probably oh, the episode that, yeah. that that got it for her. If I had to pick one, which is always hard for Queen Edie Falco, but yeah, this kind of acting is not uh, not easy uh, for anybody. And the doctors and the nurses—they're going nuts. Tony rips the breathing tube out. He's convulsing. We get the glimpse of the wound. Uh, bad stuff. That stomach ache is much more than a black and a grouper sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Tony starts speaking. Who am I? Where am I going? Carmela's trying to get some recognition out of him. Who am I? Who am I? Get the uh. They have to put the tube back in, and Carmela goes out to the uh to the peanut gallery. Everyone stands up. Everyone's on edge. I, it feels like we're dropped in at a point where this has maybe been going on for. A couple of hours, but it's still raw, it's still fresh. It's uh you know, Junior's probably still in lockup somewhere and and these guys have uh you know, so everyone is waiting on the slightest bit of news. Is he gonna survive? Isn't he? What's what's happening? So Vito curses Junior when he talks about the tube going back in. AJ says Anthony Soprano's not gonna die. I love the cracks about AJ's hair in this episode, by the way. Yeah, so good. Van Van Helsing, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, Paulie calling AJ Van Helsing is an all-timer.
1: You know, noted to our setting in the dream, not dream, or coma dream, or whatever we're going to call it, uh, hospitals are also in between places, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Because they feel, no matter where you are in your life, if you have to go into the hospital for any reason, if it's you, if it's a loved one the hospital feels like its own little universe and you're not quite yourself while you are there. And it is literally a transition point. People are being born there and people are dying there. Mm. Right. So it it is its own kind of purgatory as well. So really, really smart. Uh, obviously this writing team is masterful, but yeah, it's it's Tony in both worlds is kind of undergoing the same journey. He's awaiting judgment in both places And the people around him are just kind of like swimming in front of him. Uh, And they're all waiting. You know, you're on one side of the waiting room or the other. The literal literal waiting room in the hospital waiting. Will he die? Won't he die? What's going on? We're in the waiting room of maybe purgatory. What's this all coming to? Where am I going? Really good stuff. And again, really only satisfying to people who can watch this and feel something from this. Um, But even if you couldn't, even if you couldn't follow it philosophically, Every single one of us has been in that hospital with a loved one or there ourselves, and we've all felt Carmela's
2: pain. Mm. Well, uh, there's an up, uh, there's a couple episodes of a show that I love called uh, Deadwood, where mm. one of the main characters, um, Deadwood's a bit more of an ensemble, but one of the main characters um, who had in the first season kind of taken over the show suffers a brutal health crisis that renders him not dead, but um, like Tony, effectively bedridden and not a dramatic figure in the show, uh, other than the people revolving around him, for a couple of episodes. And one of the things that that did was it allowed the other actors and the other characters to breathe, to in effect do their own work on the show. And I think one of the cool things among many is, as Jordan said, seeing these characters in this position really gives them some room to play. Yeah. um, Edie Falco somehow outdoing herself. (laughs) And um, I think Robert Eiler also some really wonderful work. Um, So I think that's another thing that, yeah, even though 20 years ago, again, I didn't really love or appreciate this episode. It was a real pleasure to watch it that way. um, Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now to appreciate those things.
0: Well everything bounces off Tony always. He's the pinwheel at the center, he's the he's the pin in the center of the wheel and you've essentially ripped that center out and everyone is going off in their various different directions. Uh fascinating fascinating stuff. You know, I did give a sp- especially because he comes up later on. I did give a spare thought to boy oh boy how much easier would things have been if Eugene Ponacorvo just held out for another like day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, well, he was still in in with the feds, but at least one of his two big problems would have been off the table. This hospital's these hospital shots are very beautiful. The color palette is very uh, blue, gray, muted. It's not the scenes are not very bright. You got uh, this excellent scene of Chris holding Carmela, Chris holding Meadow's hand. Chris really coming through for the Soprano women here and in, in this moment. I uh, yeah. really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. says says a lot about him, and uh, then of course the opposite of that, which is Vito lurking in the halls by himself.
1: Well, the last time we had a, a hospital episode, it was Chris in the hospital, right? Not that this is a parallel episode to From Where to Eternity, but there is some stuff that's in the same conversation.
0: Mm. So we jump back we jump back into the finity sequence, for lack of better descriptor. And he is embracing the Finnerty identity now to get into a hotel. He's using, well, I have this credit card. I have this identity. I have this ID. I sort of look like him. All right, I'll be Finnerty. He's checking into a different hotel, room 728. Not sure if there's any significance to that number other than for some of the people in this uh in this uh, chat (laughs) 728
1: providence baby (laughs) that's a that's a Hofstra in joke for Hofstra university friends there you go yes
0: yes (laughs) and then this is one of my favorite amazing that they can drop such comedy in the middle of what we're witnessing back out in the real world this monk sequence fucking kills me I I, (laughs) there's something about this whole thing it's Tony's so good. reaction it's so good. Tony's reaction to being slapped. When the monks confront him, they think he's Finnerty. They had a horrible year at the monastery because Finnerty sold him a bum heating system. Tony is trying to get across that he's not actually Kevin Finnerty, and they're they're annoyed that he's trying to run some kind of scam on them. So they slap him, lose your arrogance. And his fucking, <laughs> his, his reaction to that, just, he hit me. He hit me. <laughs> just <laughs> totally opposite of how the Tony we know. Right.
1: Because our Tony would kill them. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I dare say that our Tony wouldn't have even been hit by this guy. I think Tony, our Tony would have projected the you better not energy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what Paul was saying. Like you, you observe James Gambolfini in his body as this character. Yeah. Somehow, Tony's size, which is usually intimidating, right, uh, now becomes sort of buffoonish, like oafish, yes, right? Oafish. So it's, it's the other way that a large man can operate.
2: So yeah, you, you would not hit regular Tony, but you, you'd hit Kevin Finnerty. <laughs> I think it was uh, in the last sequence, in the coma world, that Tony went back to the hotel that he had checked into and thought he could again or tried to get some information, and He didn't have a good conversation with this uh, turkey neck guy at the Mm. front desk. And he sarcastically says to him, thanks for being so helpful. And the guy seems to feel a little off put, but it really struck me that this Tony's anger is completely impotent. (laughs) He's just like, thanks for being so helpful. And again, goes off with his rolly case. He just looks like another. (laughs) He looks like another schmuck on a business trip. Again, join the club. That phrase means you're not special. This is just another guy. Um, and it really struck me. I'm a very big fan of uh, the Coen brothers. They made a movie some years ago called um, A Serious Man. And it reminded me of this moment at the end of like that character in that movie, tempting fate by simply uh, changing a piece of paperwork. The simple act of this of this Tony checking in, um, you know, Chris, it's fraud. He checks in <laughs> yeah. under the other name. That action changes the whole dynamic. The Tibetan monks overhear it, and it leads to, as you guys said, this very bizarre encounter where I'm still not over whoever this Tony Soprano is, his response to violence um, being truly upset. Um, And again, not violence like we know in North Jersey that's meant to maim or destroy. This is just the guy trying to secure his attention. Right.
0: (laughs) He slapped me in the mouth. Great, great delivery there. Yeah, the, the again, more of this cute dialogue. David Chase is being very, uh, I think, you know, judicious with it, but it, 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 it impacts in, in the right way, I think. You're off in your own world, lost in your work. Tony exits the room after this conversation, trying to figure out this situation he's in. Please bear with us. <laughs> and he has to go down the stairs. And as he's uh, going down the stairs, he falls and uh, smacks his head. Then we get the sequence where we meet Dr. Plepler. Uh, I am very much Team Meadow in this uh, sequence here, where Carmela understandably is trying to listen to the doctor. And But this, this guy Plepler, uh, I would not be thrilled if someone I love were under this man's care. He's probably very competent but uh, the bedside manner leaves a lot to be desired. There does seem to be some communication issues between the nighttime and the daytime doctor. There's sepsis, open wound. Dr. Tashlin didn't come in. They're inducing coma to knock down the fever. And then he cites the, quote, obvious negative outcome. So that drops an interesting bomb on the viewers, right? To think that, I, I look. I can't speak for everybody, but I imagine if you're watching this for the first time, you're thinking, "Holy shit, is he gonna?" First of all, is he gonna come out of this? Is the rest of the season gonna be touching back in on Tony's coma? Right. Mm-hmm. And and then even if he does wake up, we're took we're looking at brain damage, obvious negative outcome, degrees of so. This is a monumental event for the remainder of the show, and because it is the sixth season, all bets are off, uh, which adds an excitement to it. There's there's no telling what's coming next.
2: Yeah. It's a really good analysis, Chris. It it seems to add to that purgatorial vibe that Jordan was talking about that the doctors don't seem to communicate well with each other. There there's not a lot of straight answers. I I found myself speculating watching it that when they say obvious negative outcome is it in part to underpromise and overdeliver, but it it's it's just infuriating. Um to watch and and to feel that up in the air quality that the, the characters are feeling.
0: Yeah. We get a little tidbit here that Meadow's considering medicine uh, or law. We knew that she had an interest in the law, but she uh, clearly knows some things about, uh, about medicine. And then Janice comes in and makes it all about her. <laughs> well,
1: <that's, laughs> this is classic Janice. Yep.
0: Night at the opera. Night at the mm-hmm. opera. Might as well have uh italian subtitles underneath this this is
1: right well i think and what's so funny is that she comes ostensibly to be a help and immediately is in need of help herself so very very classic (laughs) janice uh
0: let me just say i love our one touchdown on junior this episode by the way this this little interrogation scene first of all (laughs) i love the way it's shot i love how irritated chianese is yep that he's just so put out by the fact that he's in prison, being interrogated, screaming, "What is this person talking about?" Uh, <laughs> we learn that he has a new lawyer. He was turned off by Melvoin. I guess he had some something wrong with his paralyzed hand after the stroke. So we're introduced to Junior's new lawyer. But uh, this is much different than when Junior tried to play mentally incompetent a few seasons ago, is it not?
1: No, Yeah, so the the irony right now, he actually is mentally incompetent, sad to watch, um, but a a very funny scene.
2: Yeah, I think of it like it's like a scene in a David Lynch movie or something. Um, And it is very funny, as you guys said, also very sad. And, you know, the waiting room aspect, purgatory for Junior, it's like that, but maybe even worse. I mean, he doesn't know where he's coming from, let alone where he's going. Yeah. Well, and and to tie it together, and you know
1: we'll we'll get this in a bit, but um, you know the the head injury that Tony slash Kevin Finnerty sustains is very similar to the head injury. I think it's even in the same spot on his forehead, mm. where uh microphone the microphone struck Junior and he fell down those steps, and that precipitated his his decline, uh, his mental decline, and the you know Alzheimer's diagnosis and all that. So there there's that tying this together too. And, and making this really a, a, a parallel piece.
0: What a fascinating little detail that Tony's purgatory involves being linked to the guy who shot him and put him there.
1: Mm, isn't, that fucking, yes.
0: isn't that a crazy choice? That's so fascinating.
1: It is a crazy choice, but it is in line with other choices that these two worlds are very much connected, right? Uh, and, and yes, in obvious ways, like when the Doctor shines the light in Tony's eyes and he looks above and sees the light, sees the helicopter— um, but also in these less direct ways like um oh Tony had a, a bad grouper sandwich and it created a stomach ache and in the real world he literally has a hole through him through his stomach you know mm-hmm. um you know we'll we'll continue to see this as the coma goes on because we're, we're certainly not through with it but it's it is interesting to see what parallels on the
2: other side there's a phone call early on somewhere in the coma sequence where again it's not it seems like not AJ and Meadow but they he has a daughter and a son. The daughter's older, a bit more with it, it seems a bit more even. So that fits. Um, and the ki- the the son threw up. Mom put him to bed. And then AJ, again, maybe psychosomatic is having these stomach problems. There's some funny parallels going on, as Jordan said. Mm. Right.
1: And and even some where the um the the comatose Tony wouldn't be able to know some of those things. So it, it almost lends it to i hate using this word in episodes where it isn't necessarily the case but there's almost a supernatural bent to it where it's like hey it doesn't matter if the sleeping tony heard these things or not in the universe on one side aj is faking a stomach ache and in the universe on the other side the distant child has the stomach flu um so it's it's you know pretty crazy
0: that's so that's fucking wild man god this writing uh, David Chase did this one alone. I I am not surprised. This is this is just so nutty in a great way. Cut ahead to Eugene's funeral. I hate seeing what he went through and then hearing the guys like kind of low key talking shit about it. But we get the lay of the land. It looks like Silvio is keeping things organized for now. Makes sense. Level headed, consigliere kind of guy. Boss is laid up. We don't know where things are going. He's going to be collecting for Tony. Opens the floor. They talk about Junior. Several ties in this embarrassment right now. What happens to Junior is Tony's call. Okay. And then Vito raises his hand after being told not to make any comments about yourself. Just more for the group. And starts bickering about a property with Bobby. We find out that Vito is a top earner now. Paulie calls him a fat fucking kiss-ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, that's interesting. Vito being a uh, a top earner. Then we get the next scene. But uh, a lot, let, let's just, there's definitely at the start of season six, a push of importance in Vito Spadafore. We found out what we found out about him late in season five. Now he's a captain. He's a top earner. He was making some comments to Eugene in the last episode about being, uh, you know, not out of the realm of possibility. I could run this family someday. So they are doing more with Vito here, including and then this next scene where he makes this. Uh, I really liked everybody's comments about suicide. I thought they were very on brand. Hesh talking about how it runs in families, and then Vito talking about, uh, you know, maybe he was quote a homo and didn't felt like he had nobody he could talk to. It happens, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, uh, this is not me being critical of the show. Obviously, I think they're, I think they're doing, they're killing it always, but I I don't understand the veto push. Uh, it's not a character that I desire to know more about, but actually, I I guess the idea is that the more you find out about him, the less you like. Mm. Uh, I don't know. It's the way in which it's presented, right? Like, it's a lot of things we should like. We should like that he's lost weight, we should like that he's a top earner. We should like that he's concerned about the boss of the family. Uh, But all these things come off as being very, very disingenuous and very off putting. Pauli's line is so funny because he calls him out on the bullshit that we're all witnessing. Uh, You just, you know, that this guy's up to no good and you really want to get to the bottom of it. It's just, you know, we don't get there yet.
2: Hmm. Yeah. What Vito, this is, this does seem deliberate in the writing. What Vito is trying to do by subterfuge it's not working because the other characters are noticing. Yeah. Um, They're not charmed by him. They're kind of off put. And in Chris's case, he's immediately onto something with what he has to make a issue out of everything. That's not the kind of attention you want if you're slowly trying to, I don't know, take over the family. So it's a funny set of things. Um, I do think there's a funny, weird moment. I do not know if this is deliberate, but when he makes the comment, maybe he was a, h slur and couldn't tell anybody the baby that is in janice's arms spins around and stares at Vito. <laughs> i assume accusingly. um it's the just baby. a funny the baby knows. Moment. i don't know if... yeah maybe knows uh the the it could have been a pure accident but it's just a very funny little moment janice also gives them a funny look like what's good what's with you um <laughs> but uh yeah you know, Ganniscoli isn't my favorite actor, but like, also remembering something that Lily said when we recorded on Members Only, there's an ick factor that seems kind of deliberate. Mm. You know, like watching this and you're like, Ugh. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: So
2: the way I <laughs>
0: the way I see it, and opinions or whatever on Joe Ganniscoli, the actor aside, we can talk about that at on another date, but they seem to be doing something uh, yet again, another subversion of the expectations with the Sopranos in that each season in their own way sets up an antagonist to Tony, right? You're watching the first couple of beats of season six, part one, and you're thinking, okay, Phil is out there, but John has a lid on Phil. And then you got Vito who is making comments. He seems like he's going to be a more of a foil to Tony. They're setting him up for that role and then rather than do something weird with Vito, they do something completely weird with Tony. They take Tony out of the equation. Yeah, it's so odd. Yeah. And, and and put Vito in this weird power vacuum where is he or isn't he? Who's looking to who for leadership? So we're, we'll see where all this goes. But Vito is uh, definitely someone we should keep an eye on. Yeah. AJ's talking to reporters. I am not mad at Carmela for dragging him away angrily she scolds him he forgot the cd she sends him to go get everybody breakfast i think is this the scene where she tells him everybody's pitching in here but you yes i believe so yeah so uh she sends him there and then we get the uh, the lovely little laugh moment where uh chris told paulie at the funeral that she doesn't need a stereo and then proceeds to send the stereo uh, himself. <laughs> I'm going to get him a nice little stereo for the room. You don't need that.
2: Yeah. Chris actually being um, much more clever than the other gangsters who are trying to make the right propitiations and give the right offerings to um, the injured King. Uh, Chris does it better by subterfuge than the others. Keep an eye on that. It's going to be important. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I also want to say a fuck you to the reporter for the growing up Soprano thing because it's uh, (laughs) it's it's an accurately lame kind of thing that I'm sure a reporter would have come up with around the time that that stupid growing up gaudy.
0: Yeah, this had to have been. Yeah, that. Yeah, right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. I remember that show. There were a bunch of mob reality shows around this time too. Isn't this around when Mob Wives? A couple years, maybe a year or two after this. Anyway, Carmela plays Smoke on the Water. This is not the first time Tony's listened to this song on the show. Last time, I believe, uh, Tony was hammering his fist on the dashboard for a skipping CD and then crashed his car into a, a stanchion.
1: <laughs> That's, that is correct.
0: <laughs> so much so that I associate that song with that moment. It's one of those songs that was ruined by The Sopranos for me, because anytime time <laughs> it comes on in the car, I start slamming my dashboard. Motherfuck! chris pulls up to the satriali's pork store with johnny sax maserati and guess who's in there agent harris oh sheriff of nottingham my kingdom for more (laughs) to tell (laughs) how are things over there in diarrhea stan quote unquote (laughs) of course agent harris we found out moved over to anti-terrorism keeps coming back uh, he asks about Tony, Chris shuts him down, but Harris gives this line. That's not why I'm asking. How's he doing? He's fucked up. So that's interesting. Uh, and then Chris picks up on it and says, you know, I didn't think you'd come for the sandwiches. I think you come because you miss us. And while Harris doesn't offer a response, I, I don't know that he's wrong. I think, uh, I think for how, and I'm th- especially I'm putting myself back in post nine eleven America those couple of years where the war on terror really ramped up and the war in Iraq and the conversation about Islamic fundamentalism and terror and I have to imagine that for a guy like Harris to be dealing with that day in and day out there has to be a nostalgic charm to the American gangsters that uh is non-existent in the it's it's sort of the same charm that I think a lot of viewers of the show would have almost that it's like man, yeah the gangsters are bad but uh this shit I'm doing now is really fucked up
1: <laughs> yeah uh, well you know it's it's cool of David Chase to give us an FBI character that was a little bit more sympathetic uh, We were seeing that of course in past seasons but now this really seems to cement it a little bit more. That now that Harris isn't actively investigating these guys, he can maybe express a little bit more that like he, uh, yeah, I don't know, enjoyed them, enjoyed the drama of their lives. Uh, you know, feels a kind of a camaraderie with them. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think, you know, Chris Chris is correct. He Harris likes being around them. He likes them.
2: Jordan mentioned I think last season that Age and Harris among the FBI characters that we usually rake over the coal, seemed like at least a bit more of a human being and sure enough there's as Jordan said, there's like that glimpse here and like, yeah, maybe Chris isn't off about this. Um, Yeah. Why else would he come back? I mean, Hey, I bet the sandwiches are good, but it's kind of, it's like a, it's a fun little getaway for him. It seems like. Right. And there's also the possibility.
0: I mean, he, he does, he doesn't, He doesn't totally disengage from business either. He does drop this bit about the fact that they're pursuing methods of funding for terrorism and trying to cut off the terrorist financial networks and proposes to Chris, you know, if you were to hear of anything going down, Middle Easterners, whatever. And Chris Chris jokes and calls you, call you. It's your country too, isn't it? Uh, So they're dropping this. And we're gonna pick up on it in a little bit, but just uh, it's this is now twice that um, these agents have come around here talking about terrorism. So we'll 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 come back to that. But th- they did they did also mention though they confirmed that uh, Matush was involved in something. Uh, you knew Matush Gia I didn't know shit about his politics till your people told me. Right. Uh. So it 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 does plant the seed that. Perhaps the uh, terrorists in the post 9-11 America may have brushed up against American organized crime. So we're going to keep an eye on that.
2: Chris, mm-hmm. I thought he was just very religious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just opening a prep school for, for young boys. All right. <laughs> uh Listen, I am not going to disgrace this next scene by going beat for beat through it. Carmela's insanely delivered monologue, one of the best acted moments in the whole episode. So,
2: so real.
0: Uh, It's beautiful. It's incredibly acted. It's exquisite. It's up. It's down. It's sad. It's laughter. It's beautiful. It's the kind of thing that can only be given by somebody who is speaking to someone they love in a coma and just go watch it i think she won the emmy in this scene yes yeah uh, wh- one thing i will note though this fucking line going into that mri will always come back here it is again where she apologizes uh i don't know why you know,
1: that's that's lifelike too it's lifelike yeah. too you know you say some things to somebody and or they say it to you uh, you, you never forget it uh, i mean I, I realize this is like a duh thing but like You know, time is funny. It collapses around things. You know, you'll remember a moment forever, something somebody said to you, but you can't remember what you actually ate for breakfast three days ago. Right. It's just uh, that line looms large for her because it was such a judgment of him. But, you know, it it really opened up the doors to judgment of herself and how she is, you know, complicit in his life and in her own. You know, it's 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 interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: Well said. I agree. Um, I think this is the scene of the episode. Again, Edie Falco somehow outdoing herself. Um, There's funny moments, sweet moments, powerful moments. And I think the key moment, as Jordan said, is when she brings up that moment. Again, we're back to the pilot. How fascinating. Um, The moment at the MRI when she says, you're going to hell when you die. and You threw it back up at me when we were separated and you were right. And she talks about how it's a sin i will be judged for it and the reference is tony being judged going being sent to hell and this this whole set of images in the coma sequence is not literally say tony at saint peter's gate but isn't this the last four things death judgment heaven and hell isn't it being or at least we can speculate is it being decided where tony will go whether or not he'll move on it's fascinating how all those questions come together
0: Absolutely. Well said, man. Another point of synergy between the real world and the Kevin Finnerty world, she talks about the MRI in this scene, and Tony just came out of an MRI in the coma where he is diagnosed with Alzheimer's by the doctor. And so we have that synergy where discussion of MRI, coming out of MRI. And then another link with Junior here, Tony, I, I the viewer has to think of Junior when Tony describes Alzheimer's as sh- you're a Smurf for ten or fifteen years and then you die shitting in your pajamas. I know people with all with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's Jeez. it's a it's a very Tony Soprano. It reminds me of of uh, Livia and Janice. Another toothpick. It's a very callous way to describe uh somebody who is with Alzheimer's, but it's also unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how somebody uh, who has a cynical disposition uh, would 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 term it that way. It is a very sad thing to watch somebody wither of Alzheimer's, and now, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and now Tony is facing that fate in this uh, coma sequence, and the lines of identity
2: are being further blurred. Chris, I loved what you said about bringing it back to some Livia esque imagery from another toothpick. Again, maybe the and I an irony or a relationship between the two worlds. You remember in North Jersey, the family just wants to hear some information or get some comfort, and the doctors are so aloof and such dicks. This doctor um seems like a naturally nice guy, who's trying to comfort this Tony, but this Tony is in a very fatalistic place. So here, the comfort as opposed to not being given falls on deaf ears. I thought that was very interesting. Mm yeah yeah
0: meadow's talking to tony aj has a stomach flu he still hasn't visited tony that we've seen finn's coming out he likes you she gives that uh our father poem which i thought just a nice sweet touchdown with meadow and tony here getting a little more information we're gonna see finn soon it sounds like yeah
1: that's a killer poem by the way Mm,
0: it is We get a beautiful shot of the soprano pool and man, oh man, I can feel the shower that Carmela is taking in this scene. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I've been there. Not, not exactly. I guess I haven't had my spouse in a coma and I've been in the hot, but I've had showers like that where it's like just resplendent and you could just pass out standing up in it. AJ loading up his plate. Vito farting more ick factor <laughs> right i don't know why they chose to um put that little scene there except that uh you know there's something fouling up the stench in tony's absence i guess I, uh, just, <laughs> <Right>. just <laughs> fouling the air well scream. also
1: yeah. yeah also more you know that uh, betraying the fact that he's not so reverent right not so respectful right like, like yeah, yeah i'll, I'll pretend to, to be you know deeply respectful of your situation but i'll I'll fucking fart into your couch cushions, you know? Mm.
0: This scene between AJ and Meadow has Livia all over it. It's like Livia drippings in the bottom of the roast beef pan. It is uh, mm. uh, AJ busts in and Meadow says, I could have been naked in here direct. <laughs> right. Direct,
1: they both, they both uh, quote Livia in this. Yep. Yep. Which right. uh, hers is I could have been naked in here. He's got the poor you.
0: Yep. Yep. Poor you. Uh, they argue it's stupid it's a sibling argument they're both exhausted AJ's talking about hybrid cars she doesn't give a shit uh, AJ's <coughs> pushing the issue
1: AJ speaks a strange language doesn't he uh, you know he clearly is trying to address that he's made so uncomfortable and is so sad about Tony's condition but he doesn't have a mature way to speak about it, Mm. his bridge to his sister to try to speak about these environmentally conscious cars, of which we know he has no interest, because then the next time we see him talking, when he'll be talking to Tony, he's talking about a fucking Mustang. I don't know how environmentally conscious that is. (laughs) So, yeah, so we know this one is for the purpose of just talking to Meadow. Uh, AJ's a real dick in this episode, but I give him some credit. He doesn't have the emotional maturity to deal with what's happening. Meadow does. Everyone around him does. And he's expected to act a certain way, but we know he's not that kid, you know?
2: Yeah. Seeing AJ in this episode, there's differences, but it really reminded me of when we recorded, I think, um, our season five opener, Wildfire, covering the episode two Tonys. And when the bear thing happens, AJ just freezes. And Jordan was saying, what is this freeze? And here... Carmella and Meadow understandably frayed at the edges and all that. They're stepping up and there's movement. I think this is kind of, as Jordan was just saying about AJ just trying to find a language to speak in, this is kind of an elongated freeze, I think. And AJ pulling back, retreating. I agree, yeah.
0: Wow, that's great, guys. I love that. And I I also love when they get to the meat of the matter, finally. Isn't this embarrassing? Our family... Our goober fucking uncle. <laughs> Meadow brings up the Italian, the family stuff. And AJ, very cynical. Yeah, I got the big lecture. And then, uh, sees the reporters calls out, fuck you, which I love, 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 love. <laughs> although, although I'm more a fan of the Paulie Walnut style of uh, reporter treatment. <laughs> right. <laughs> then this great Carmela Rosalie scene, another five star Carmela scene, uh, and Sharon Angela as Rosalie god she's so good a great
1: she's... scene sharon angela's killing this
0: yeah again with the st- aj shows up angry that he wasn't put on the visiting roster hey fabio i'm available <laughs> <laughs> fantastic she's so likable but he storms off hey, Carmela calls him out he goes clubbing in new york it frightens him then she starts justifying it and Roe really goes in. I love Rosalie's tactic here of of just being very frank. Kids yeah. his age are getting blown up in Iraq. Very true. Well, that's a fascinating psychological nugget, but it doesn't change the fact that if he doesn't pull his weight in this, no one's going to forgive him. And you know, and um, he's a selfish boy who doesn't give a shit. And it gets it disrupts Carmela to the point where she flat out says you know, don't use my son for your ideas on right. parenting. I I don't know. You never took a hard line with AJ to which Rosalie drops the ultimate win line, which is, well, why do you think I'm talking to you like this? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Come on. Um, this woman has learned the hardest possible lesson on child rearing, particularly of an angsty son of a gangster. So you can see that registers with Carmela. It softens her up a bit but she still finds a way to baby him and justify it. The open wound vac and uh, Rosalie finally resigns and that's the end of the scene. But boy, what a great exchange between these two women. I really liked this.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a dynamite scene. I love that Rosalie doesn't back down and, and, you know, I I think another way that scene could have gone would be an apology from Rosalie, but that's, that's not her purpose here. Uh, you know she she meant it you know but she can only dig in more uh, like honestly who has lost more than rosalie right yeah. uh, she would love to spare her friend this fate it's great
2: it's uh yeah it's it's wonderfully acted um by all three and it's funny that i think it comes out carmela something that carmela's not foolish she noticed it and it's not to say that rosalie didn't make mistakes The assumption that's wrong is that Rosalie has not wrestled with it. Mm -hmm. Indeed, she has. Um, She doesn't even miss a beat when Carmella pushes back. She says, why do you think I'm talking to you like this? Um, And as Chris, you said, Carmella's got her good rationalization ready. But like Jordan was saying, this is what the scene is about and will be brought back to Rosalie's hard-hitting advice in the next beat with Carmella and A.J. where she's at her wit's end with him, of course.
0: Yeah. Cut to what I was referring to, Paulie shoving the reporters off the property. Shame on them for being on the property, by the way, these vultures, these TMZ fucks. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm very much of uh, that mindset. Uh, I know he's a gangster, but Jesus Christ, there's a lot of uh, innocent people here. Uh, and then the feds are grilling Carm about Junior, and June, Carmella is speaking the truth, leaving out some details, but also... Just being very frank, I haven't talked to him. Don't see him. Why don't you talk to him? I'm not going to discuss that with you. What's very cool is Meadow is on the background with Finn, and if you watch this episode with the DVD commentary, apparently Meadow was improvising this entirely, uh, which is very cool. And and she she did such a good job on the improv that they actually went back and shot that one frame of Finn at in his dental school arguing with with Meadow interesting yeah Uh, yeah but it's very cool that Jamie Lynn Sigler uh, knows this character and her relationship with Finn so well that she essentially improvised one of their dumb annoying pointless (laughs) arguments (laughs) junior made pointed references to the Kennedy assassination (laughs) I had to ask my husband was three years old (laughs) <laughs> that's such, such a funny inclusion yeah 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 just a, a love i love that little touch uh carm sits bobby comforts her so let's note that you got the more um you got the more vulture style gangsters like the paulie in the in the in the veto who are kind of pretending and then you got bobby and chris who are showing genuine affection for Carmella, right. And i think that's yeah. uh something that viewers should be
2: picking up on I love that moment. It's so short. I think Carmella's got one line, but I was thinking to myself, if I were in that situation, Bobby's the one I'd want to see.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Yep. AJ finally goes in to see Tony. Carmella sees him and decides to give him some privacy to talk. He's he's in there yakking. And we find out he's talking about the Shelby GT500 Oh, that was Shelby. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just going on and on and on.
1: But you know what? It's okay. You yeah. can talk about whatever. Of it's, course. it's just nice. It's nice that he's in there. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Then we get this interesting cutaway before we come back to the in my you know, the more interesting AJ scene here. Uh Chris pops in at the Bing and we're introduced to these two characters, Ahmed and Muhammad. They're sitting at the Bing. Uh, we've never seen these characters before. They ask about Tony. Chris, you know, gives them a very broad answer and they say, give him our wishes, please. Uh, We have to assume that there's a business relationship between Chris and these guys uh, because they're probably not friends. Let's be honest. So watching this as a first timer, it you don't know where this is going. You don't know who these guys are, but you have to think back to the they were just specifically talking about Middle Eastern terrorism being linked with organized crime a couple scenes ago. And um, at this point, if there isn't some kind of story thread that's being woven with this, then it's bad writing. And The Sopranos doesn't do bad writing. So keep an an eye on Ahmed and Muhammad. And uh, I imagine we will be uh, touching back on this topic later. But uh, yeah, interesting. Then the big... The big AJ scene does a nice job here. A uh, big beat shift. If you're looking at your script the, and you're marking your beats as an actor, <laughs> one minute you're talking about cars, and and then it's, uh, "Hey, Dad, I'm gonna get Junior for this." Oh boy, you mm-hmm, can't yeah. you can't feel good watching this because for for multiple reasons. One, it's not something Tony would ever want AJ to be involved with, even if AJ had the capacity and gangster ethic to do this. Uh, But it's that plus the fact that he absolutely does not have any of the gangster savvy or gangster ethic. So not only is it bad on just a moral front, we don't want to see AJ go down this road. It's also just like if he chooses to go down this road, it will end in catastrophe for him. (laughs) It's a double whammy. So uh, yeah, hell of a scene there. He's going to put a bullet in his fucking mummy head. uh, But what's, you know, here's the thing. It, it sounds like he means it. This is the most genuine thing oh, he has right. said the whole hour.
1: What's so effective about that part of the scene is that it doesn't feel impotent. I, I mean, we might really think about it and say, okay, there's no way that's going to happen. But there is a certain conviction that AJ has when he's delivering those lines. And you're saying, okay, I, I, I believe he wants to do this. But even if he doesn't get to, he wants to do something. Mm. There's something wild in AJ that has been loosed. And even if it means that he's he's not going to kill Junior, he's going to do something because AJ is looking to actualize the feelings inside of him in a way that he can't express. And he's we should be worried. Yeah, I guess that's that's what I would say.
2: And if if this alone didn't make us worried enough in the next beat, when we see what else has fallen out from under AJ? yeah um it you know it's all adding up to this kid this kid needs so much more direction in terms of moving towards something and to move him away from these other um avenues that he might be going down and i completely agree with jordan that something in the frustration i think has aj just wanting to do something which is not a great place to be putting energy because it can go to very dark places yeah mm, yeah
0: Funny line. It means a lot. And then AJ says, who knows what it means? He just lies there, <laughs> <laughs> but that's funny. Uh, and then he drops the news. I flunked out of school and Carmela says with your father in a coma, maybe three or four times here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and as, as funny as that is, yeah. Paul's hundred percent. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, the, be worried. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. No, he's not in a good place. And then our our last little scene here, uh, Carmela walks in, Anthony, can you hear us? And then we cut back to the hotel room. Tony's coming back. The last time we saw Kevin Finnerty, Tony, by the way, interesting that we started with a huge like 10 minute block. And then each time we saw Tony S. Finnerty, the scenes get shorter. Mm, yeah. Uh, and he comes into the room uh, day after day. Saxophone rendition is, is going on in the background. Uh it's very suggestive of a purgatory looking out in my from my lonely room day after day is the lyrics of that song. He sits down on the edge, he goes to make a call, decides against it, puts hangs the phone back up, stares out at the beacon, and the wonderful, uplifting tune When it's cold, I like to die from Moby. Uh, <laughs> takes us out uh and that's it that's join the club any thoughts on there this final go. final sequence and on the uh whole episode proper
1: oh gosh uh well you know i i think it it's you know if, if it's ballsy to shoot tony at the end of the first episode and it's ballsy to have him in a coma dream for the entire second episode it's still ballsy to not have that result by the end <laughs> of the second episode. So now these poor normal people that I cited in the beginning of this podcast episode, they're freaking the fuck out. Cause now they're saying what I have to do this again next week, <laughs> you know? And this is before the age of streaming where they get just plug in the next one and just let the next episode play. Right. But even if they did, uh, it's an amazing hour of television. I think will go down as being one of my favorites of this season. I so enjoy trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the coma dream. And I also so relate to what is going on in Soprano land while Tony is away from all of that. Um, Yeah. I I mean, Paul, when he talked about Deadwood, uh, you know, mentioned, you know, when, when swear engines incapacitated, does it does feel like that we're kind of like seeing what happens in this world when you know the centerpiece is is gone that's that's so important that's so well said um it's a great episode i don't think i have anything else to say Uh, incredible
2: yeah i think um as jordan has said a few times in the course of our podcast the sopranos is a show that is always teaching you anew how to watch it and good lord in these episodes, I really got to keep up with what they're teaching me because this is enigmatic and it's weird. And as Jordan said, it's before the era of streaming, like imagine this episode ending and now it's another week before we even see what the hell is happening. Um, You know, as Chris, as Chris said, each, each sequence in the coma dream uh, gets shorter and shorter. So even though it comes full on at the beginning and hits you with this big 10 minute block, As it goes on, it feels more and more like it's receding. I can't quite grasp it. I can't quite touch it. I certainly can't put my feet down somewhere and say it is this. I don't know if this is meant to show us something existential like that Tony is so pursued by worry and the sense of persecution and anxiety that even in his life as a tough guy gangster, he might as well be a schmuck on a business trip or another interpretation that this Kevin Finnerty idea marks that his world as a gangster, his life as a gangster is a choice. It's not fatalistic. It's not, you're born to this shit. Um, It's something different. Again, I don't know for sure. These are all presented as questions, but again, I, like I said, 20 years ago, I think something blocked off those questions because I wanted answers. And now I find myself leaning in and, um, I just celebrate what this show continues to do and how gutsy they are in doing it um adore this episode top to bottom
0: yeah fully agreed gentlemen at some point you have to accept that the questions are the art yeah uh and and that's tough when you're invested in a narrative when you're invested in plot because the plot and the characters are all very good it's natural to want resolution to those things but uh comes a day when David Chase and company who have done so well throughout six seasons to always keep you on your toes, always keep you guessing in an industry where it's very easy to fall into a formula after a certain amount of time. And so at a certain point, you just got to lay back and 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 say, all right, I'm along for this ride. I care enough. Let's, let's, let's get weird. Let's get freaky. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm totally here for it. I will say at this point in the season, I left this episode watching it my first time thinking, this could be the whole... Se- like, the whole season could be Finnerty land, And I'm not going to confirm or deny because it's a spoiler-free show. But I imagine if you're going through the series for the first time, that has to be going through your mind of, like, what the fuck is going to happen and how out of control is the world going to get without Tony Soprano. Thankfully, we uh, are going to find out in the next episode, which is... Uh, <laughs> when I think about it more and more, it might be one of my favorite titles for any episode, of, uh, where, it, where it comes from in the episode. But we're going to be coming back with Mayhem. Uh, and I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's another home run. Season six is charging out of the gate with some of the best shit they've ever put out. So I can't wait to cover Mayhem, get back Infinity Land with my friends Jordan and Paul. I'm Chris D'Amato.
2: I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will be back for mayhem. What is this person talking about? Got myself